0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the sports media podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Today, three guests, uh, three excellent guests, three really good conversations. I think you're going to enjoy this. Uh, First up is Marley Rivera, who is a national baseball writer for ESPN with a focus on the Yankees. Um, Just in absolutely, uh, I've known Marley for a long time and a really, really just interesting figure in baseball. Um, Bilingual, does remarkable work, both with um, the Yankees as well as... uh, Stories on Latin players. The reason she came on is she wrote a really interesting piece where she interviewed um, multiple uh, African-American players from today and yesterday about their experiences when it came to racism in baseball. It's very eye-opening. And again, it's on ESPN.com, so she discusses her reporting there as well as covering baseball. Uh, Amid COVID-19 Marley Rivera is followed by James Andrew Miller Back-to-back guests for Mr. Miller And uh, we get into The Adrian Wojnarowski suspension So that's uh, Miller coming back on Just to discuss that I think you'll find that really, really interesting We go... uh, back and forth on uh, ESPN's uh, so our historical selective discipline and and was this inappropriate punishment, and I think you'll find that interesting. Last up is Steve Hers who is the president of the Montag Group, which is one of the big talent agencies when it comes to sports television. He's the author of a new book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy to Get Exceptional Results. Talk about Steve's book. Uh, particularly in relation to the sports media, and then he analyzes the uh, the terrain that's coming in terms of uh, in terms of will networks uh, cut back, what's going to happen to salary structures. Uh, Steve was on my podcast before, and uh, uh, he's he's very honest and blunt when it comes to to this stuff. Um, some agents are more circumspect, but but Steve is willing to um, speak out about stuff that I think the general public. At least those who who are interested in sports media will find really, really interesting. So uh, Marley Rivera starts, followed by Jim Miller, followed by Steve Hers, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Marley Rivera is a national baseball writer for ESPN. She has a focus on the Yankees. Uh, if you watch that network or if you're a fan of baseball, uh, I'm sure you know her and her work uh you'll see her sometimes on uh sports center you've certainly seen her on uh baseball tonight she's done some live stuff with espn in games uh she's uh not only an incredibly talented person but uh a very a great person just to talk to whenever you see her also uh an incredible weapon for espn as someone who is bilingual and uh and that's something my colleague at the athletic ken rosenthal always talks about that uh if he had to do it over again, he would have become fluent in Spanish and how every baseball reporter um, should be. And it does kick me in the ass here, as someone who took Spanish for seven years in high school, how much I've forgotten. And Marley Rivera joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Good morning, Marley. Thank you for joining me. Como está?
1: Good morning. Viennito, I'm so impressed by this. Really, I didn't even know I had accomplished all these things. I'm really gonna walk around with you, uh, just reciting all these accomplishments that I have. Apparently, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. I'd be a good. I
0: feel like I'd be a good hype man, just like walking in Brooklyn or Manhattan, Fantastic. Manhattan behind yeah. you, just screaming like all your resume stuff. It'd be awesome, actually. It's, <laughs> until we were until you know, until we, we were arrested time. by De Blasio's cops, basically.
1: Well, you know, De Blasio will find a way to
0: arrest you. <laughs> All right. So the reason, um, you know, it's always good to have you on, but I, I was struck by a piece that you did um, recently, and it's one of the reasons I reached out. you. Um, and this must have taken a while to do, but you talked to a number of uh, black Major League Baseball players, past and present, on like their experiences when it came to racism in MLB and and what needs to change. So whether it was LaTroy Hawkins or Jason Hayward, uh, Dusty Baker, like I, I you know, I, I, I'm certainly not naive to racism. I think if you live in the world, you're not naive to it. But I have to be honest with you, Marley, some of the stories that these guys told, like sort of were eye-opening to me. So let's sort of start from the beginning. Um, if you would sort of describe the reporting for the piece, the conception for it, and and some of the challenges to put this together.
1: I think, uh, first, thank you so much for for having me, Richard. It's uh, it's my pleasure. I really just enjoy talking to you, period. But um, for for me in the beginning, just to give you a little background, one of the reasons why I decided to reach out to my editors and pitch this piece was because I have had a great deal of frustration in my last uh, decade at ESPN, not with ESPN, but with uh, Major League Baseball Latino players. There's been a lot of issues, um, social issues, that I feel that the Latino players had a platform to address and chose not to. And um, I've spoken to them, you know, for for well over a decade about the reasons why they choose not to. And, you know, 99.9% of the reasons are, you know, they're afraid to lose their job and become troublemakers. And what I remember thinking about that, it's precisely what you hear from Black and African-American players in terms of, you know, not only their racist taunts, but also, you know, that part about, you know, this ingrained racism that exists, you know, in baseball that no one talks about. Right? And then so I reached out to all these players You mentioned uh, quite a few of the retired ones. And, and to be quite honest, Richard, not only was it very hard, it was also really heartbreaking because I reached out to well over 60 people for this piece. And you can tell that just over, you know, 10 of them got on the record. So the hardest part was getting guys to speak on the record. Established men, men that I that I respect their voices in the game, maybe that men that are no longer in the game. And they chose not to speak on the record about it. Because they're still so afraid and talk about eye-opening. This isn't happening in the 1960s. This isn't happening in the 1970s. It happened in, you know, in the year 2020, that there are gentlemen, you know, there are black men in baseball who are afraid to speak out about their experiences. So that was really eye-opening for me. Exactly what you said, you know, you and I, you know, grew up in New York City. You are around a lot of diversity. So you always feel that that's kind of the norm. And it is. In baseball, the diversity, right, outside the ballpark is very different uh, for these guys. And one of the most uh, shocking uh, things that I heard from one of the players was that people forget that once we leave the clubhouse, because I can tell you that none of them, including on the record or off the record, ever called out a teammate or said anything about happening inside the clubhouse. None of them did. I'm not saying that it doesn't, but none of them mentioned it happening. And I asked. And then after that, it's an entirely different experience for all of them in society, and that was uh, that was incredible to me. And it's just incredibly shocking that you know that players are getting called the N word, that they are getting insulted while on the field on the year 2019, 2018, 2020. Yes, it was shocking to me, Richard.
0: Marley, what um, if you could? What do you think the climate is right now for all this stuff? The uh, one of the things that was pretty. Uh, newsworthy was uh, like the Red Sox organization sort of acknowledging like this stuff has happened in, in the crowd and we we have to change this Uh, you know, in terms of sort of the modern players, you know, Jason Hayward and Freddie Freeman discussed their experiences as, uh, as younger players and Freddie Freeman being basically stunned at what Jason Hayward uh, had to go through. And then, you know, we're not so far removed uh, from Bruce Maxwell who knelt during the national anthem a couple of years ago? Now plays in the Mexican league, but I'm not. And your piece didn't even get into this, but I can only imagine what kind of hate mail and and social media vitriol that a guy like that got.
1: Yeah, and and Bruce has been a you know our colleague of, you know one one of the things that that I did was like this was obviously had many many parts right working on this piece, and and our colleague Howard Bryant was one of the ones that worked on one of the bruce maxwell pieces and, and specifically talked to him about it and like you said he was more of a larger piece for me but in talking to bruce maxwell you know he specifically mentioned major league baseball and having knelt in, fl- in front of the flag as the reason why he got blackballed, and the fact that he is playing now in mexican league and hasn't gotten any opportunities in baseball and that's exactly what it is and this happened in the year 2017 and what needs to happen is what you mentioned, guys like Jason Hayward, right, like active men in the game that decide to speak out. And I understand, and I understand why they don't, and I understand that everyone has to choose their own path, which is exactly what I would tell every single player that I talked to that chose to not go on the record apologized to me for not going on the record. And the reason, everything that I told them every time was, You don't have to apologize because everyone has to choose their path. And not only that, I am a Latina woman. I have experienced racism in a very different way. So I cannot speak for black men and their experience. I cannot. So I have to wait for them to choose to tell me their experience. And if they choose not to because of whatever reason, then that is their prerogative. Right. I I wish that they spoke out spoke out. I wish that I had, you know, 60 people quoted on the piece instead of 10, but I do think that the 10 that we have, it's very powerful. And it became, you know, they are very representative of everybody else that I reached out to. And the change can only come when there's some diversity that tells these guys that they are empowered to speak out. Because when you are constantly afraid of losing your job because of the color of your skin, because you're worried about being seen as a troublemaker you're worried about being seen as unemployable then you know or the you know using dave roberts's words you know the quote-unquote angry black man then that is always going to be an issue until we have some sort of diversity in front offices it's just it's the only way it can change
0: what uh where do you think baseball as sort of an institution is in terms of in terms of making the sport more welcoming for black players, in terms of diversifying their front offices. So much of this, Marlene, this is not just a baseball thing. This is in every sport. So much of this has to sort of float down from ownership. If ownership is committed to a diverse, um, uh, you know, sort of set of employees, then it can happen. If ownership is not interested in that, then generally speaking in that market, nothing's going to, at least this is my take, nothing's going to change. How do you, You know, if you sort of think about baseball writ large, um, how serious are they when it comes to issues of diversity and certainly issues of like the declining amount of black ballplayers in the sport?
1: I think there's real concern. I think one of the things that they want to do is revamp what is called the RBI program, which is this kind of, you know, inner city uh, program to help, you know, young children, especially uh, black and brown children. To help them get involved in baseball, and that is a, uh, I think that beefing up those programs is going to be very important. I do think they care, but I think it's been now thrown in their face because of the fact that uh, there was an, you know, an interesting tweet the other day by one of our colleagues, uh, Arash Madani, who goes and tweets a picture of the Board of Governors, I believe was the name, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, of the, you know, of the National Hockey League in, uh, in Canada. And it was, you know, just a picture of, you know, eight, ten white men, as it usually happens in executive boards, right? It's something very, very common, right? There's no, uh, no shock here. And then I replied to that with the executive board of Major League Baseball, which looks pretty much the same. And that is exactly, you know, what we're talking about. So I do think that they care. I think that they are making some strides and there is an effort, but I think it has to be put right now You know, there has to be the the pedal to the metal, if if we want to be cliché. Like, it has to be accelerated because, you know, when you see the English Premier League, right, all these players start the first weekend of the season wearing Black Lives Matter behind their jersey. And right now, when you reach out to Major League Baseball, to any team and ask, you know, straight out, What are are you guys going to do to honor the lives of these black men and women that have died in vain? You know, hopefully not in vain, but that died, you know, in such unfortunate, terrible circumstances and crimes. How are you guys going to recognize them? And no one speaks out about that. So it is a true challenge. It is a very important time, you know, for United States sports. It is. And it's going to be interesting, Richard, to see what happens in the bubble for the National Basketball Association, if it is the Black Lives Matter on the court painted? What is it? How are they going to recognize, you know, a very real social movement that is happening in the United States? You can't turn a a blind eye anymore. You can't, you know, to use uh, Dave Roberts' words again is like, if not now, when? This is the time when you need to listen. It sucks that we're talking about that this is happening in 2020, but okay, so this is where we are. Then you need to listen. It isn't the time to talk. It is the time to listen, and and hopefully that's what they're willing to do.
0: Marley, I want to ask you about um, covering baseball uh, amid um, amid COVID nineteen. You are while well, you're a national baseball writer, your focus is the Yankees. You live in New York, so you're gonna if you go on Marley's Twitter feed, you'll see a lot of Yankee stuff. Um, can you give just the listeners a sense of of how different this is from access to just how you have to get into the park, to, to, to watch practice. It's, this is, uh, um, it's not just a brave new world for the players, but it's a brave new world for the reporters who cover baseball too.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And and let's be very clear. You know, when I, when I tell you, you know, these, you know, sort of details of of the process that we go through and so on, I'm not complaining because I want to make sure that I say that because we have colleagues and friends and family members who have lost their jobs right (laughs) during COVID-19. So let's be very clear that what I'm saying is just, you know, exactly what you asked, which is how different things are. I am blessed to have a job. I mean, at this point, especially at this point in time, covering a sport that we don't even know if we're going to have a season. But um, that being said, it is so different and it's incredibly difficult to explain because I was really excited when we knew that things were going to get geared back up because, you know, we spent and we have a very famous number in New York City, 111 days, right, of of total lockdown um, during a terrible, terrible pandemic where over 800 people were dying overnight, right? So it's like during this time, and during that time, you were trying to to find some sort of lifeline and cover baseball in some sort of way and, and tell stories and so on. So we did that for those, you know, 100 and something days, and then now you get to go to the ballpark, so you get very excited, and then you show up and you know the reality of it. And the reality of it is that you are confined to a very small space. Well, not small, because Yankee Stadium has a huge press box, but you are confined to the press box. You have to wear your mask. There is zero, which is not a problem, but we have to. There is zero access to anything except water. (laughs) You have to make sure that you bring every single morsel of food or coffee or anything that you're going to bring, you bring it yourself because you cannot leave the ballpark. You are not allowed to be anywhere near the players. We're actually from the press box seeing everything. So you always have to watch everything with binoculars to figure out what's happening. And you can't hear or talk to any one of them unless they put them on a Zoom room or, you know, on these famous now conference call or a video. So it's a very, very strange process. It controls the message very much so, which is kind of what we were afraid that could happen from teams because they will only offer you the players that they want, (laughs) you know, to talk. So those are the ones that you will get on a daily basis. And it's just very, very different. The, The work that you put in as a baseball reporter for a very long time, it's sort of, it's very frustrating to not be able to do it because you're just up there sort of, you know, in a weird way, you could do it from home. You could just join these Zoom calls from just home and get to talk to the players and so on. But, there are moments when it does matter when you're at the ballpark, like when Tanaka got hit in the head or when, you know, Judge, judge got hurt again, like just these kinds of things that we are there to report on. But the process, you know, we get tested. It, well, I mean, now we don't get tested for coronavirus. We get um, our temperature taken twice. We get a questionnaire asking where we've been every single day and uh what kind of in terms of contact tracing we have been uh next to anyone with COVID 19 or that possibly could be diagnosed uh, as a positive so it's uh it's a new era let's just say that in uh in covering baseball and i have to say not a fun one it's a constant reminder you know that maybe we should be doing this that you know that we are in a pandemic and this is a. Uh, it's difficult sometimes to be up there and try to justify why you're there. So I think that's, that's sort of the hardest part.
0: What are your expectations for the season in terms of um, what, uh, I mean, let's forget about asking the larger question, are they going to finish? But in terms of covering this stuff, like is it your intention to go to as many games at Yankee stadium as possible? I'm imagining that you're not going to travel for ESPN. What's, what does what, what your schedule, at least as best you know, look like right at the moment?
1: Well, at this moment, the company is trying to limit travel like most companies are. So they are the number one thing that we have been told, and I know, you know, because obviously we relate to all these people around us that do the same jobs we do, that it's uh, sort of the norm among all companies is that most of them are willing to let you travel if you so choose to. It really is sort of like a personal decision. And um, at least at ESPN, they are encouraging you to choose not to, uh, most of the time to travel, at least for the time being, until we get a handle on this pandemic. So for us, uh, the decision has been for now, and and we know that things can change very, very quickly. But for now, I will be going to games that you can drive to. So sort of the the luckier side of being in the New York City area is that we have so many teams that you can drive to, right? Even technically, you could drive to Canada, but those are probably uh, the games that we will not be able to attend because that is not a major league baseball call. That is a call of the Canadian government, whether anyone is going to be able to come in uh, to cover Blue Jays, Yankees games. But for the rest, so we'll be driving. So to Boston, to Philadelphia, to Baltimore, to Washington, D.C., this sort of... Uh, the geographical proximity of all these places, you know, including, of course, Citi Field, uh, the other uh, ballpark in New York next to Yankee Stadium. So that's sort of the main main focus of our coverage will be places that you can drive to. You know, it limits the amount of exposure in terms of planes and hotels and so on. So that's where we are. I know a lot of companies have decided not to travel whatsoever. And some companies decided because we have to sign a very quote-unquote ironclad release, in which we basically say, if absolutely anything ever happens to me or anyone that I've ever met, um, you're not liable. <laughs> that's pretty much what we have to sign. So, you know, there's a lot of trepidation from many companies to put their employees in a position that maybe they don't want to be in. And um, that's where ESPN stands.
0: Are you uh, are you personally worried? I mean, it seems like you're going to do it, but how worried <laughs> are not. you? I'm not. Feel, I feel like I should be, to be quite honest, and obviously from someone
1: who went through what New York City went through, which, you know, as you know, Richard, you know very well that, you know, very few places in the world have and hopefully will have to go through through what we went through and the amount, you know, 23,000 people dying um, just in the city. So obviously, so I feel that I should be more careful. But I think it comes out of the fact that I do see that there's a lot of you know, really proper measures being done. And if you follow the rules, you do feel safe. So if you follow, you know, they have access to, I mean, basically they have, you know, antibacterial soap everywhere and, you know, enhanced hand sanitizers and social distancing marks everywhere. You can actually remain six feet apart from almost everybody. So it really is a really clear, um, you know, They're doing a really good job with these protocols, so it makes you feel that there's safety. It's the psychological part that that is almost bothersome because it's the fact that I want to be there, I would like to be there, but should I? So that's the one that kind of works on you all the time. Just because you can do something, it doesn't mean that you should. So so at that moment, when I am in the ballpark, I do sometimes wonder whether we should even be here um, at this point.
0: Well, I want to finish with this. Um, as you know, a couple of days ago, since uh, at least based on the time we're taping this, the New York Times um, had a story about ESPN, where ESPN employees criticized the career path of of uh, of people of color. There, a lack of diversity in top leadership. And the piece basically has your, you know, the top bosses of your company uh, eliciting a promise to do. Better as um, you know, as, a, as as a woman of color, there um, I wonder what was your reaction Understanding that you got to be a little diplomatic, I don't want you to get fired from this podcast. <laughs> what did What did That would be the worst. Basically, anybody getting fired from this ridiculous podcast. But you know, a serious <laughs> question. Um, what was your reaction to that piece? And if you can, did 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 some of those uh, experiences that some of your colleagues talked about in that piece did they resonate with you?
1: absolutely i think i would be disingenuous you know it would be i would be lying and i and i would never uh i know that people most of the people listening to this don't know me but you know richard knows me and i don't really lie very much which is uh almost a detriment in this business these days (laughs) almost like a negative thing now but um, um but absolutely and and let's be very clear Some of the names that were out there, especially in terms of uh, ESPN brass, like Norby Williamson or Jill Frederickson that were, you know, criticized maybe for their behavior have been nothing but champions for me. And then you kind of feel that, you know, I hear their stories. I empathize with them. I know that that can happen. I know this for a fact. But I don't relate in this particular case because the particular names that were mentioned there, have been very, very kind to me uh, in my tenure at ESPN, and this is almost my 10th year. So, but absolutely, I mean, it is, it is not even like an ESPN problem. It is, a you know, an American culture <laughs> problem where, especially women of color, because um, when, when um, reading about Maria Taylor and some of the things she had to say and reading what my former colleague, Jamel Hill, Hill, and my friend Jamel Hill um, had to say, Um, It it does remind you of the things that you go through. You know, I have been dismissed in meetings. I have been dismissed over email. I have been, you know, I have been called, quote unquote, the deportes girl. You know, I have been, there's been, there have been a lot of things that have happened at ESPN that have changed and some of them haven't. And I do know that you know, Jimmy Pitaro and other people are making a, a conscientious effort to change that, but it needs to happen. I mean, it is, uh, there's hardly any executives of color at ESPN, and we know that for a fact, but that is a reflection of America. That isn't a reflection of ESPN. Um, and actually, unfortunately, when you look at, you know, this is an issue. In, in places that are that you would think that are black and African-American, you know, rich, and like you feel like there's so much diversity, like places like the National Basketball Association or the National Football Association, you know, League, like these places that you think, oh, you know, they're golden because they have such a great, you know, percentage of diversity. And there's a lot of black men that play the sport. And in the executive realm, it isn't like that. Right. Like actually the NFL even had to institute, you know, the ruling rule, you know, at one point in order to interview, right, African-American men and black men for positions, you know, executive positions and coaching positions. So it's the same thing at ESPN. It's the same problem that we were talking about baseball. There has to be a, a, a real effort in order to open some doors to people of color in terms of, you know, opportunities. And one of the. One of the fallacies that we hear all the time is that, well, people should be hired based only on merit. And that is absolutely true. I couldn't agree with you more. It is on merit. But let's say, for example, and I will use just myself to see if someone who's listening to your podcast, you know, will understand. Let's say it's all on merit that you're a very talented person. The only reason that I am where I am today, besides hard work, is because I got a scholarship through Affirmative Action. Because otherwise, how would a little girl from Puerto Rico, right, end up in some fancy school to study? Because I could never afford that. I could never. There, it was. It wasn't even like there were no doors. It wasn't even a possibility. It was. You know, it, it's not even to use. You know, to use Jason Hayworth's words in a full circle thing. It's not a fight that I couldn't start. I'm sorry. It's not a fight that you can't finish. It's a. It's a fight that you can't even start. That's the problem. You're never in the room. And that is where we need to change. People of color have to be in the room where decisions are made. And then that's where we have to change as a company, ESPN. We have to change as companies all over journalism. I mean, the percentages, Richard, and you know this, the percentages of, you know, of, of men and women, brown, black, Asian American men and women in positions of editorial positions or editors or anything are nil, I mean, it literally is incredible. Yesterday I was talking to my colleague, Pete Caldera of the Bergen Record, and he tells me about his editor, David Rivera, and I flipped. I couldn't believe that he had a Latino editor in baseball. Like, that for me was, I couldn't believe it because I only know of one other one. So that's exactly what we're talking about. The fact is that it needs to happen across the board, and it needs to happen at ESPN, right? Like, these words matter. What Michael Eves had to say matters, What these people had to say matters. It isn't my experience. I don't necessarily agree with everything that they said in my experience, but it is their
2: experience.
1: And then if it is their experience, which it is, because these are people of integrity and people who are speaking the truth, then we need to give power to that experience by simply listening, right? We talked about it before. It isn't the time to talk. It's the time to listen. ESPN needs to listen. And this is how we... This is how we affect change. Whether it's affected me or not, doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is that it affected somebody in our company, and if it affects just a single person, then things need to change.
0: That's really well said, Marley. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> well, every uh, once in a while I can, I can figure out how to say things. <laughs> so, let's, let's stop that. As, as I've said both in print and I'll say to you here, it uh, um, you should be you should be front-facing when it comes to ESPN's Thanks. biggest baseball, events. I think uh, – unquestionably so and i hope that i hope that does come to fruition um marley rivera uh is a uh she doesn't really have a title but i'll just make one up basically senior i'm just a writer writer. senior (laughs) national baseball writer for espn but um she's she's focused yes i'll 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 talk to jimmy Pitaro tomorrow and and ask okay cool um she uh, she is a focus on the Yankees, but she covers um, she covers baseball nationally. Uh, I, I would I mean follow her all her pieces on Twitter, but she happened to uh, be part of what was a really remarkable piece with these African American baseball players who were just honest about their experiences when it comes to race and, and baseball. And I think for some people it will be eye opening. And um, and follow her work as uh, baseball, like every other major sport, attempts to navigate in the most uncharted waters we have ever seen. Uh, Marley, I'll be reading your stuff. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you. Uh, you know I'm uh, such a big admirer of your work. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Richard. And uh, I'm so glad, you know, we're it's our loss that you're not on United States. soil, But what a great choice to be up in Canada during this time. So um, <laughs> hopefully uh, they will open... You know, that border at some point when it's safe, and if we do have baseball, I do get to see you soon, and my best to
0: your family. Thank you, yeah. Passport still says American, but let's keep that border closed (laughs) a little longer, Marley. No, no, don't take it (laughs) first.
1: Absolutely. Whatever works for Canada, (laughs) then that's what should happen.
0: (laughs) Marley Rivera, everyone. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. All right, as I said at the top, Jim Miller is back for a second week, which uh, is fantastic for me. He is the Kawhi Leonard of Cadence 13, and that's why we bring him back here. He, uh, his Origins podcast on Almost Famous is um, doing phenomenal, so check that out. That's uh, Almost Famous, five episodes of, um, of uh, Almost Famous and sort of the cast coming back together and talking about the experiences of that great movie. And Jim Miller, of course, has been on this podcast many times to talk about ESPN-related things, and that is why he I brought him back real quick to talk about the Adrian Wojnarowski suspension. To give you just a brief background, if you don't know this, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, and this is uh, reporting from, we'll give them credit, Ryan Beagle, Andrew Marsh, and Ben Strauss, was credited was um, suspended for a couple weeks for his response to a email blast from the Missouri Senator Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley is very much a China hawk, He's trying to get on uh, the NBA's case regarding um, the money that they make in China, not being supportive of Hong Kong. We don't have to go through these issues here. The NBA's initial reaction to Hong Kong was shit. Uh, I think they've been sort of a little bit better since. But again, Josh Hawley is uh, it's one of his issues that he's um, sort of putting out there. There's no doubt, like most politicians, he's trying to get some run by using the NBA Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN's most prominent reporter, rather than deleting the press blast from Hawley's office, responds to it by saying, fuck you. Hawley releases it. You can sort of feel however you want to feel about a center of the United States releasing private information. And then, of course, it becomes a massive story online, uh, NBA players supporting Woj, you know, people blasting ESPN once again for being whatever, you know, left-leaning anti-Hong Kong network, you know, all the same usual nonsense that everybody sort of uh, does. But for these purposes, the interesting part to me, and this is why I want to get Jim Miller on, is Adrian Wojanowski suspended for two weeks, It's per Andrew Marshan in the New York Post. All right, Jim, I've had better intros than that, and I apologize for a man of your... Uh, intellect and standing in the in the business for me not giving you a better intro than this. But the macro question is, how did you view the uh, Adrian Wojnarowski? first the public rebuke by ESPN and his apology, and then secondly, the suspension?
2: Look, I think Woj understood that he did something that he shouldn't have done, particularly from his company email. I think that if he had been able to reach across the internet and pull it back, he probably would have done it. Um, But I don't really care so much about that. I mean, we all make mistakes and I, it was not a surprise that ESPN uh, needed to do something to make sure that they uh, address this issue. What pisses me off and what, Braces, you know, what I have to brace myself for and all of us have to brace ourselves for is two things. One is that since Jimmy Pitaro became president of ESPN, he had he had two big things on his agenda. One was to repair relations with the NFL and the second was to get politics out of ESPN. And part of the strategy to get politics out of ESPN was they decided that they were going to keep keep punishments private. They weren't gonna publicly talk about how they were punishing their, or suspending or firing or anything like their employees. And during the course of Jimmy's presidency, there have been numerous occasions where they've done just that. Um, I don't understand why and how this got leaked. It's um, it's it, it reached to me of an agenda. It's pisses me off because Woj is incredibly talented. He happens to be a good human being, and he he doesn't deserve that, um particularly given the fact that this was now a big corporate policy that they were going to keep these things uh, secret. The second thing is that you know, Jimmy Pitaro welcome to John Skipperland because now, as you suggested in your introduction, politics uh, is has roared its way back into Uh, ESPN. It had done so before after, you know, on a matter of race. And now uh, they're in business with Jamil Hill and Colin Kaepernick. If somebody had told you that three years ago, they would have thought you had been trying acid. And so, you know, welcome, Jimmy, to this world, because You know, I had people tweeting at me, if this had been Nancy Pelosi, he would have been fired. But because it was a Republican, it's only two weeks. I mean, you know, did you ever, Richard, did you ever see the movie Defending Your Life with written by Albert Brooks? So, you know, uh, do people think like there are when you get hired at ESPN, there are like these trams? that they say to you, okay, those of you who have been raised in conservative households or have conservative beliefs, please take the trams to the left, and you will go into the redoctrination center, and you'll be repro- reprogrammed. So you can be, I mean, ESPN has thousands and thousands of employees. They have liberal employees. They have moderate employees. They have conservative employees. Traditionally, over the course of ESPN's history, the conservative employees tend to be quieter and they tend to be um, more people behind the camera than on camera, but that's not to say that there haven't been significant people who have been on camera who are conservative. So this whole new iteration of ESPN is a liberal institution, and, you know, it just, that's to me, that's the most unfortunate thing that has come out of this, um, which is they, they, you know, they really violated – Will just you know write to privacy about what was going on with his own employment with ESPN, and more importantly, now we have to hear once again that somehow six thousand employees all believe the same thing, and this is a DNC uh, operation, uh, you know, hiding as a sports enterprise. It's just
0: nonsense. All right. So a couple of things here. Uh, if, by the way, if, so apparently leaks still happen after Adnan Verk was. Uh was let go well, it, oh yeah incredible an, 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 incre- yeah. an incredible circumstance I I was I was under the impression that that was it that the leaks had ended once Adnan was gone so I guess well I'm you honest.
2: know all murders stopped after capital punishment <laughs> that's was that's correct
0: you. right right exactly yeah nonsense all right anyway so let me let you I don't think you're gonna agree with me here but but I want to just sort of play this out and get your thought I, I've talked to many people over the years about this uh, including Bob Lee someone I have great respect for totally disagrees with me on, on this kind of stuff um and my thought, Jim, is that once you have a public rebuke, uh, ESPN came out and basically said, like, this is unacceptable behavior. You you as an employee of ours and a particularly high-profile employee cannot do this kind of stuff. You cannot send this kind of missive to a senator, no matter how you feel about the senator or no matter how you feel about the, you know, whether you think that the senator is doing this in bad faith. You you can't send this out. And I, I, and I agree with that. I, I, I mean— you know, like, like there's a part of us that always would love to tell every senator we dislike to fuck off, but I, I get it. ESPN's a public company, and, and you got to put that out there. You, you don't want all your employees to do X. So here's my thought, Jim, and just please let me know how you think about this. Why isn't the public rebuke enough to sort of say, you apologize, you know, Woj- Wojnowski apologized, ESPN as an organization said, this is unacceptable why then the suspension part? And this is one I sort of have always argued with with others. And by the way, just so people know, I am consistent on this. You could go find on my Twitter feed, I did not think Kurt Schilling should be suspended. Whenever that is, in 2016, you'll find that. I think a lot of people find that surprising for me, but I, I said the same thing there, and I will say the same thing here. This is a first offense, Jim, as far as I know, uh, with, with Wojnarowski and something like this. And I think when you do the suspension part, to me, it just feels like you're sort of catering to to others here, as opposed to making a decision. It was a dumb, sloppy, hot-headed move to send that. No one would argue that. But I, I guess I want to get from your perspective: what does the two weeks without pay, uh, based on Andrew Marshan's reporting, like what what does that do internally? Like. Does that send a message to everybody that you are not to do this, or you'll lose money? That—that's the one part of this I don't get. Why is the public rebuke? Why is the embarrassment of this not enough?
2: That's why. That, that has always been the case. That it's supposed to put some teeth into it as well. And that's why, even when Tony Gornheiser said something bad about Hannah Storm's wardrobe, or Bill Simmons had his suspensions or whatever, there's supposed to be a another element to it which is um which is supposed to be a disincentive and as you know one of the things one of the big ruptures in Simmons relationship with Skipper was when they actually did do the suspension without pay and he got his paycheck and and flipped out but the truth is that through the years they've there have been all this is a world of gray you know basically there isn't this isn't like you know, um, armed robbery, and if you use a gun, then that means that the statute says that you are now able, you know, you're eligible to be thrown in jail for like seven to 10 years, if you didn't use a gun, it would be been three to five. This is all great. So this is why some people back when Stephen Smith were saying certain things uh, a year ago, or other people have said certain things and where everybody's standing by and saying, well, he's, he or she's got to get suspended for that, right? And then they say, well, maybe not. And one of the things that's happened with Pataro, under Pataro, is they've said, we're not going to comment publicly about it. I mean, these decisions happen in a very small circle. So, yes, everybody was expecting Bush to be down in Florida in the bubble. And when he doesn't show up, it doesn't take a triple digit IQ to figure out that, you know what, maybe he's gotten suspended. And you know what um, Crystal Plock's department and Jimmy Petar should say is no comment and it shouldn't get out. And so the fact that, you know, why isn't why aren't they as upset about the leak now as they are about other things that, that I mean, I'm sure they're upset to a certain. Yeah,
0: you know, I mean, you know, the answer. Why are they not set up? I mean, again, I, I'm not claiming I know where this leak is, but we, we both know they're not upset about leaks that they send on their own. Of course not.
2: But why are they? But, but that's my point. Roger is one of the most respected, highest paid employees at ESPN. So why do they want to do that to him? And more importantly, here's my bottom line, which is I believe that if you're going to fire Adnan Burke, which is one of the craziest things under Katara's watch, then how can you not suspend the person for leaking? I mean, it's one thing. I, I think people should – if they're going to start suspending people for doing things, leaking should be one of them.
0: But you're, you're, no, we know we, but you're, you're not – and again, I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I have certainly been on the other side of, of, of leaks, including from that place. Uh, that said, that's not going to happen. You know that. The organizations are not going to suspend internally, even if they know where the leak is from, because it's, that's part of the day-to-day business of stuff. Understanding, as, and I am in agreement with you, that the, the very disconcerting stuff are the leaks that are done, at least in my opinion, to hurt, hurt, to hurt people. That, right, that, to really hurt someone's wait, professional they fired career. fired Adnan for leaking. Correct. Right. No, no,
2: wait, wait, They fired Adnan for, for leaking. They fired Adnan for leaking about a baseball tonight schedule. Please, are you kidding me? So why can't they say from now on, why, so why can't, why can't they say from now on, if you leak about a personnel matter and a disciplinary action, you, will, you, will, you too shall be suspended and fined. What's wrong with that?
0: I agree with you, that, but that's you know that's not going to happen. They're not going. That's not going to be why. Because I think there are official. Be, because I think I think that organization and not, they're not the only one. They there's institutional leaks that they want out there. That's my answer to that.
2: No, I mean on personal matters.
0: I I get it. I, well, then you're going to have to. Jerry Bataro is going to have to look at. I would say some pretty high level executives at his place. That would be my if it's, if
2: it's important if it's important for him look, you can't if it's important for him to have disciplinary actions be confidential, then what he should say to his direct reports and everybody else in the company for that matter is we have a policy where disciplinary actions are gonna be kept quiet. If you violate that policy, you're gonna get suspended. You're gonna be punished in one in some fashion and we'll decide what that punishment will be, just like we decide punishments about things that we have to um, address, and that's it, but um, it's just ridiculous. And the second part is exhausting, because now everybody has, you know, once again, we're like, you know, woke ESPN and everything else. I mean, it's just... It's just, it's just
0: nonsense. It's well, just they, they, they're gonna once again. They're gonna have to come up with a corporate plan in terms of like we're either gonna we're either gonna react to everybody who's attacking us in good faith and bad faith, or we're not. The, to me, the, the the way to always do this, I thought, was just you don't respond, do your own stuff, and if people criticize you or attack you, so be it. That's just life in the big. Well, here's the I, other I, let, let me, I want to ask you one thing here. You can sort get back to this. One of the things, Jim, both of us have been sort of talking about for a long time. Is the only thing consistent about ESPN talent discipline is its inconsistency. This has basically been going on now since the beginning, the beginning of time. Um, the one thing that's different about this, though, I have to admit, is that you know Woj is a big time talent there. You know, this is a Stephen A. level, Scott Van Pelt level. You know, uh, back in the day, Bill Simmons level, um, and so. I guess what I would ask you is, if this is some low-level broadcaster, does that person get fired? Or would the discipline be the same? I'm just trying to get a sense of, within this inconsistent world, what the two weeks means.
2: Uh, they they may have. They may have.
0: Hmm. Okay, interesting. You say that.
2: They, 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 may, have, they may have gotten fired because um, it would have been, I think, I, I think it would have been a stronger signal to send to um, people who think that ESPN is liberal—that you know what—we're we're coming that hard. But there's no way you could do that to to, to Woj. Is it the e- Is, is no it the, is,
0: is it the personal email part of it? Is that like the? Is it like if he did this on whatever uh, Woj at Gmail dot com? Does that change anything, or is it the fact that it was corporate email?
2: This has always been an issue. It's come up like probably eight or nine times in disciplinary actions um, with. ESPN employees the the corporate email is the third rail so <laughs> yeah. you can always just 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 stay away from that that's that's just like pouring kerosene on the fire um but the people who think that he would have been fired if it had been to Pelosi are are smoking crack that's just not that part is just not true there's no way
0: yeah yeah I agree I, I think that it would have been the same. It's, I, I, again I will say this um about uh, about Wojnowski. he and again I, I am I am someone who has made some stupid decisions on Twitter um, so I am not uh, I'm not taking myself away from this I've tried very hard not to get into very dumb performative fights in the last couple of years hopefully that's called maturity the the one thing Jim that I take away from this or I shouldn't say the one thing but one thing I take away from this is Adrian Wonowski is such a careful circumspect reporter he does not make mistakes when everybody is sort of heading towards one story. I remember he was, he he was silent essentially on Kawhi Leonard uh, throughout all the speculation until it was finally done. And then he broke it. So the one thing about this that is just crazy to me is this was a, you know, this was a sloppy in the moment heated decision for a guy whose reporting is the exact opposite. And it just sort of goes to show you just how, you know, dangerous email and, social media and Twitter can be, because he clearly just emotionally made that decision in like a millisecond, right? He probably didn't even think twice. And then, of course, and what happened is, you know, it's the other side. It's the Hawley side who made it public. You know, there probably would have been one time back in the day where there would have been, you know, the press officer calls Wojnowski and says, what the hell is this, man? You want to talk? Let's talk, but don't send this. But instead, they... You know, they made it public because they knew very well what was going to come down the pike.
2: Yeah, listen, I mean, Cotton did it to the New York Times. I mean, in a way, uh, it, it, it's too juicy too, too an opportunity not to seize upon. But all Woj proved was that he's a human being and human beings make mistakes. And I think that Woj also has a strong moral compass and he figured out, you know, very very quickly that he shouldn't have done it regretted it understood what espn did and is taking it like a man or take you know and and so there's no there's no mystery about you know the whole woe thing it's just about on espn and how they're going to handle this in the future
0: yeah yeah listen and i will say this um there's certainly a sort of a the debate to be had is like, you know, is Woj too close to the NBA? Why is he sort of sending a fuck you response back? Because you know, it sort of feels like a little bit of a league spokesperson. And that's a fair debate to have. You know, this is the debate that's always gone on with access people like Schefter and Woj and Peter King, et cetera. But I will say this, Jim, and I know you're going to agree with me on this. He has just become a made man for life in the NBA because every player saw it, every General manager, assistant general manager coach, saw that this guy basically had the back of the league. So he's, ironically enough, I think it makes him a much bigger figure in NBA circles and probably sets him up as a reporter for the rest of his career. Not that he did this intentionally, but I think that's what happens.
2: Did you ever used to watch Bill Simmons' Twitter following after he would get suspended? It would always, I mean, it was growing anyway, but it would grow just, I believe it grew disproportionately because, you know, these These big controversial I mean and when Tony got suspended for what he wrote about anna his you know his supporters and fans came from out from all, all over the place, so I mean, I do think these things sometimes have an paradoxical effect uh but his is presence in the industry and, uh, you know, is master of what he does, this was pretty well set up before this. So, um, I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's, I think it will ultimately help him except for two weeks of salary, which, uh, you know, was, is, and by the way, it's not insignificant.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'll take that two weeks. Um, all right. Is there any, you know, I'm disappointed you didn't curse on this podcast, like you did with the, and inverk one, which led to a ton of downloads for me. is there anything else you would like to add i just I just
2: think that look I, I mean this O thing, particularly with Hong Kong and everything else it's getting once again espN is getting more uh, connected to political things and I'm not sure if they realize what is coming down the road because Jimmy did a great job, and Norby of course was like cleaner at the end of la femme nikita cleaned up sports center six and uh, just, just totally totally took it apart and you know devoid of all its political aspects and uh and of course you know they couldn't wait to get rid of jamel and here they are three years later they get a deal with jamel and so i just think the messaging is kind of strange because they made such a point of several years ago saying look Our fans have told us consistently over and over again. They don't want anything political. They don't want anything controversial. They just want to come here for sports and scores. And they basically insisted that their employees do it. Now, in the aftermath of everything that's happened over the past several months, it's clear that they can't control it anymore. And that's fine. But now they have to come up with a narrative that explains why they're jumping back in and why somehow they think that their fans want something different. Um, that is, uh, you know, you can applaud them for doing Colin and Jamel, but the only point is now it's got to be tied to a larger narrative and to understand why we're doing yet another 180. And that's going to require a lot of a lot of messaging on the part of Jimmy, Connor, Crystal Plaka and others um, at the network, because, uh, you know, these people who are were upset at ESPN for becoming too political, quote unquote, um, they're not going to disappear so it'll be interesting to see how they handle it.
0: Yeah, again, uh it's woe we'll just thing is one thing. It's a whole different thing to talk about the nexus of sports and systemic racism. Um it, it, to me if you're a news organization and you don't cover that or you don't allow your people, particularly your employees of color to talk about that then to me you're nothing more than an ATM. So you got to decide who you are at least sort of morally and 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 you know, solely. Um but you know, generally speaking, I think if you bet on ESPN being um, being driven by green more than anything else, it's usually the bet to take. But, yes, I agree with you a 1,000%. Like, they are now going to have to navigate some choppy waters. My only point I've always said is, like, those waters are choppy. Like, just live with it. And, you know, I would trust my employees to... Sort of speak on issues that are important to them and their truths, but that's very easy for me to say as someone who manages absolutely no one. Um, all right, Jim. Anything else? I, I would like to give you the last word, if if you want it.
2: Okay. No, that's good. But thanks for having me.
0: Before history is written,
1: Bobby Orr, it
0: the it's played. Tinelli, Before
2: it's frozen in time. <laughs> It's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
0: All right, as I said at the top, Steve hers is the president of the Montag Group, uh, formerly the head of IF Management. He is the author of a new book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy to Get Exceptional Results. For people who have been listening to my podcast for six-plus years, God bless you, other than my own immediate family. Steve Herz was a guest on this podcast, or the Sports Illustrated podcast, in June of 2016, where he discussed—it um, was pretty fascinating. He and a guy, Matt Kramer, who's at CAA, discussed— um, what it's like to be a sports agent, uh, how they go about getting clients, what the market was at least at that time, and how to sort of work and negotiate with the ESPNs and the Fox Sportses. And so, Steve, it's been four years, but uh, but I welcome you back, and congratulations on your book. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
3: Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Boy, time really flies. It's not just a, a saying. It really is Wow
0: it's it's true. All right, so let's just start off with the, you know, the the generic macro question that every author gets. Why did you write this book?
3: Well, it does go back to June of 2016. I was just about to turn 50 at that point uh, in July of 2016, and I just I don't want to say I had a midlife crisis, but for lack of a better word, we'll call it that. I just thought, what else can I do that will be valuable to the rest of the world for the rest of my life, you know, the next hopefully 50 years, the second half? And I thought, I feel like what made me a good agent or what has made me a good agent in addition to the other things that people look for is that I've been very focused on helping people get better at their craft. And I came up with this concept. I started to come up with it probably 25 years ago and honed it over time. And I thought, this could be applicable to people that do – things that are way outside the media, that are not in the public sphere, that aren't doing, you know, public speaking, so to speak. And I thought a dentist could use this, a doctor, a lawyer, and, and that's what drove me to write the book.
0: Did, um, let's sort of, let's, let's, you know, let's identify these three things and maybe tag it in relation to the sports media. So AWE stands for authority, warmth, and energy. And you sort of posit in the book that these three elements in one person's life are underrated. Uh, how so? How can, a, how can, a, how can any person, uh, um, regardless of their industry, use authority, warmth, and energy to better themselves professionally or personally?
3: So, first of all, this isn't just my uh, thinking on this. This is backed up by a lot of research, and the book is heavily footnoted. It, it shows that only 15% of your success is correlated and causally linked to how good you are at the job part of your job, the technical part of it. So that's what we would call the hard skills of life. The problem is is that in the hard skills of life, often we're competing against other people that are either just as good at the hard skills or good enough that the person who is you know, going to hire you or promote you, whatever it is, they can't even tell the difference who's better at the hard skills. So the substance of qualities don't win the day. It's the stylistic qualities. And it's not about, you know, whether you are competent, going to go right to authority for a moment. You could be really competent in what you do, but if you don't present as competent, then people aren't going to perceive you that way. And that's where these qualities really are so applicable. So for example, if you you know, talk to people and you don't make eye contact when you're talking to them or you speak with a lot of filler words or you have a weak voice. So you don't finish your sentences strongly. People are not going to perceive you as being good at what you do. And that's just the facts. I mean, we do it to other people. Other people do it to us.
0: You know, Steve, one of the interesting things, um, when I was, when I was going through your book and obviously I certainly related to, uh, you know, the sort of the fields we both work in is so much of, um, So much of what you're talking about, I mean, you use sort of uh, you use stylistic uh, as a word, but you know what I was thinking is, it's not how do I sort of phrase this? It's not such a meritocracy, in as much at least sort of what you were positing, as it is a maybe illusion is a little too strong, but you're trying to sort of put off a certain, you're trying to project a certain you. Into the marketplace, and that's not necessarily about like your skill set or your intelligence. It's a bit of a package, and one of the things I remember, even when you were when you were on my podcast four years ago, because you're very blunt about this, is you know you would tell a broadcaster like you're not dressing well, or you need to lose 15 pounds, or you need this. That's you've always been very very direct with that stuff. So. I guess I would ask you, this is more of sort of a philosophical thing. Do you, do you have to, I mean, what does it say about a world where sort of style sometimes is more important than substance? That's, I guess that's my question as I'm working towards it.
3: No, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. And I, my response is, is that my book is not a macro book. It's, it's not even remotely trying to attempt to change the world what my book is is an attempt to help one person change his or her life because the world is as the world is. And in some ways it's unfortunate. It's reality though. And you can either deal with reality and you can try to change the world. Yes, go ahead, fight those fights on the broad scale, but also realize that your life is your own life. You only have one life to live. And there are certain rules you have to play by right now. And, so, I agree with you, Richard. I lament it on a lot of levels too, but reality sucks and it is what it is. And so we all have to deal with it in my opinion at least.
0: let's 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 sort of uh, take your book and sort of uh, micro focus it to broadcasting. You have a lot of well-known clients, uh, Clarissa Ward of CNN, um, actually, at this point, Steve, given your given your title, I don't know how much you deal with on a day to day basis of of the clients but jessica mendoza dan shulman uh anybody you're dealing with on a sort of a day-to-day basis you specifically and then i'll use them as an example per se
3: yeah dan, dan, dan shulman is a guy I deal with on a day-to-day basis lee McHugh, greg amsinger brian anderson you know those types of guys and then i lean in on other clients but yeah those are you know just a few that i, I would handle regularly some some in some in conjunction with with other people
0: Gotcha. Okay, so in terms of let's just sort of take those clients. Do you do you do you think those clients sort of personify what you've been writing about here? Authority, warmth, and energy. And if so, give me a specific example with one of your clients.
3: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll say I can give you a little example on each of them. So I think Brian Anderson has off the charts warmth. He is a very friendly guy, but he has a very unique kind of warmth. He cares so much about other people, and he makes that so evident in his relationships. He's a a guy who has a deep faith, and I think that that informs his worldview. And so when he is doing a broadcast, he's so caring about the the replay operator, the producer, the director, his, his analyst. His goal is to make everybody feel appreciated and acknowledged, and most importantly, make the viewer feel appreciated and acknowledged. And so that's a level of warmth that I think is off the charts. Does he have authority? Yes. Does he have energy? Yes. But I would say that in terms of, you know, what's off the charts about him is his, is his warmth. Greg Amstinger is a guy who, if you watch him on air and you see him off the air, he has this ability to energize people like almost nobody I've ever seen in my entire life. So you just can't help but want to be around him no matter what you're doing. And does he have authority? Absolutely. Does he have um, warmth? Yes. But it's his energy that, that leads for him. I think Dan Schulman is a guy who has tremendous authority. He's gifted with an incredible voice. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He's also incredibly hardworking, incredibly prepared. And so I think Dan leads with that authority. Also, he has warmth and he has energy. But, you know, as long as you're good enough in, I think, or you're, you don't have a fatal flaw in one of them, and you have one of these qualities that can lead you to greatness. That is what I'm trying to communicate in my, both my teachings now and in the book.
0: One more thing on the uh, on the book, Steve. Um, you, you're a first-time author, correct? Or, or am I right about that? This is your first book? Yes, yes. No, you're, you're correct. Yes, yes. You know, you have clients, obviously, who are journalists um, who have uh, – my guess is probably published authors, but certainly they've they've written before. So what was this process like for you? What was the, the – you know, there's – at the end of the day, that's such a cliche, um, but, you know, the, the thing about writing a book or the thing about writing any piece is it's you and the screen. And ultimately, um, you can get all the advice you want and you can um, – you could read all the different books you want, but at a certain point, it has to be you and your words. You have to ultimately try to figure out something. So what was that process like? Because a lot of times it could be solitary. It could be frustrating. It could be exhilarating. It's, um, it's not an easy thing to do. But if nothing else in your life, Steve, you completed something that to me is just an amazing accomplishment. You know, you, 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 you wrote a book.
3: Well, I, I appreciate it. I'd say that it, it, it's been four years. It was not an easy path. I I had a lot, a lot of difficulty along the way. The the contract, I think, probably almost got canceled by HarperCollins somewhere along the way. I wrote a manuscript that, frankly, they thought stunk. And in retrospect, it did. I I went back and worked with a ghostwriter who was fantastic. And she really helped me organize my thoughts. And, you know, so it was a lot of things. First of all, I'd say my client's. Dave Revston, who's written a book, was incredibly helpful and generous with his time and thoughts. Every single one of my clients I mentioned before and and, and many others sat down for interviews and talked to me. I was able to interview so many fascinating people, some who didn't even make it in the book, like Joe Torre and former, um, you know, the founder of Home Depot, Ken Langone, and Tom Coughlin, who's in the book, and, and, and many others. And I just learned so much, so from that point of view, it was incredible to learn about these people. And then I interviewed regular everyday people. There's a great story in the book about a woman who owns a shoe store, a shoe repair store in, in, in Manhattan. And she's an incredible, incredible example of authority. I interviewed a psych, a psychologist who's a specialist in, um, suicide prevention among teens. And he was incredible talking about detached authority. So for me, it was an incredible learning experience, but it was, um, it's, it's the, in my view, it was probably the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. It was, at, at times, the most frustrating thing I've ever done. And even now, you know, just keeping it real, because you and I have done that for a long time, Like now that the book is out, it's still very challenging, and it has a lot of ups and downs. You can't help but look at that Amazon author page and see how sales are going, and how many reviews do you have, and where's the book selling? And you, know, you, you, you put so much time into something, and you, and you want it to do well, and you know I have to learn to take my own advice and and, and be a little more detached. All
0: right, let's and again uh, for anybody interested in this, uh, you certainly just Google the title uh, "Don't Take Yes for an Answer" using authority, warmth, and energy to get exceptional results into Amazon, and you'll be able to uh, purchase it there. You could also follow Steve on Twitter, and uh, and he'll have updates on that. So check that out.
3: Richard, one last thing, just 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 for, just for your audience, there's a there's a free eight page guide on the book. If-
0: Steve, is it Steve? That was good. That was a Good use of authority right there. So I, I, I'm going to give you uh, – yeah, I'm going to let you say what you want. Go ahead.
3: I, I was just going to say for your, for your listeners who don't necessarily know if they want to buy the book, there's a free eight-page guide we have on our website, www.stevenhers.com. So just wanted to point that out. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast.
0: Let me, I need this. I need the blunt. I need the blunt, Steve, from 2016, not the author on a book tour, Steve, from 2020. Yeah. So, I want to, from your perspective and from your agency's perspective, understanding obviously that you know you 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 you're, you're going to be in a, in at least a, sort of a little bit proprietary and not giving away uh, so much information about your own clients. Can you give my listeners a sense of how you see COVID 19? impacting the sports media business right now? And then perhaps even more interestingly over the next 12 to 18 months when it comes to talent salaries and just where the business might be heading financially. So I said this recently, I'll say it again. I think that
3: COVID-19 is going to have the same kind of impact on society as the industrial revolution did. I think that the changes are going to be profound and lasting and permanent. And some will be good and some will be bad. Uh, the good ones, I think, are going to be the idea that many people aren't going to have to commute to work anymore. Or if they do, it'll be a choice to commute. You'll want to have that one-day-a-week meeting in your office so you can you know, get together with your colleagues and bond with them, maybe twice a week, whatever it is, and maybe three days a week you're going to work from home. And for a lot of people, that's going to add – two, three, four hours a day to their life. And that's gonna be really great for the TV business because people will have more opportunity to consume media and there'll be a lot higher viewership levels. So there will be a lot of opportunities built around that. But you know, part and parcel of that, and to answer your question, right now, I think the business is in, obviously, some, some significant retrenchment. But it's, it's, it's really impossible, I think, to answer that question with any kind of clarity until we have more sense of where things are going to be. For example, you know, by the time your listeners are are going to hear this, we might know whether or not there's going to be a college football season. A lot of the signals are pointing to there probably won't be. We'll know in a month if the NBA is actually going to be able to pull this off. Will the NHL be able to pull it off? So I think it also depends on how fast we're going to get a vaccine. So all those variables will contribute. But irrespective of how fast we get back to, quote, unquote, normal, I think there are going to be certain things about the TV business and some of the main you know, players, the ESPN, Disney, the Comcast of the world, that aren't going to change. They're, they're going to be reevaluating their businesses and reevaluating production costs. And, for example, are we going to have sideline reporters? And is that going to be a thing that goes away this year, or is it going to go away permanently? And, but, but coming from that, I, I see a future, Richard, that's very positive And I think there's no better example of that, frankly, than the athletic. And we started to get involved in what I would call these micro brands. And I would give, you know, Gideon Cohn, who, you know, a lot of credit for that. He led the way. He he helped us and has signed this uh, group called No Laying Up. And they've become a really, really successful, you know, boutique brand in the golf business. Then I started working with Roger Bennett with Gideon from Men in Blazers. And we've had a lot of success there, too and I think places like The Athletic, places on a much larger scale like Barstool and like those individuals, obviously a Joe Rogan, now that people can go straight to the, uh, their audience and everybody's been disintermediated, if you have a goal of putting out some kind of a media content on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, and you're happy to make 200000 or a million dollars or whatever it is, that chips and chips and chips away at the established media companies. And so I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities as that becomes more the norm for talent, but it may not be working for that big entity hopefully that clarifies
1: it for you
0: yeah that's that's really interesting what have you seen um, have you seen the near term uh, sports talent salaries being uh, reduced uh, given um, you know given just the sort of the, the ad environment we're in given some big places have lost um, have lost uh, subscribers due to cord cutting what do you I, you know I, I would imagine that the the stars of the business are always going to get paid as such, but the business is really made, the business is made up of so many more people um, sort of in the quote unquote middle-class understanding that the middle-class of sports television is still a lottery ticket job, but have you seen those numbers go, go down?
3: Yes. I mean, we've seen a couple things. First of all, we've seen some of those people in the middle-class, unfortunately, some of our clients at the golf channel were, were part of the the massive layoffs in Orlando We've seen some of those people uh, on the play-by-play side who are doing college football in the fall, kind of on a holding pattern in terms of contracts that have been offered. And we've seen, you know, quite a few people who have – I mean, frankly, I have to say, I think some of the TV executives that we've dealt with have been unbelievably, frankly, generous in the way that they've treated our clients, and especially the people at CBS – I mean, Sean McManus and David Burson have extended a couple of our clients with new contracts, and I think that those guys have a very, very deep sense of loyalty, and they're also, I think, very optimistic about their own business within this environment. And I think they are very well suited for this future. And so, but other places, you know, I think at Comcast, there's a lot of pressure on people that are making these choices, and I think they still, within the realm of that, they've still been tried to be as fair as possible. But you have seen, you know, some cutbacks.
0: It's interesting. The um, in ter- you know, one of the things, Steve, that you have to sort of navigate with your clients, at least in sports, is um, is the intersection of of politics and race and social justice and their social media feeds and you know what the um, what the company dictates you can or cannot do. Versus what the individual would obviously like to say uh, about how they're feeling about things in society, like systemic racism and police brutality, et cetera. When you're talking to clients, uh, how do you how do you advise them on what has become, I think, a very very hot button issue for both the public, but in particular for you know companies who are um, are you know who have seen time and time again their employees perhaps say something on social media that makes that forces them to now either respond to it via discipline or not respond to it via discipline?
3: You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. And yesterday, uh, we have a company Zoom every morning with the Monte Group. And yesterday we had a guest speaker. We've had a guest speaker pretty much every day through the pandemic. And it was Brendan Kaminsky, social media director at ESPN. And somebody in our audience asked him that question and he had a really good answer he said that i'm paraphrasing but he said you know people can say they've got more latitude to say what they want but you know really don't attack individuals and kind of know what the line is so for example i think even if you have a lot of problems with our current president you know to to go after him personally that's gonna get a backlash there's gonna be a certain amount of people and unless you want to be in the middle of a of, of, you know, like a, a Twitter war, which I think you know, most of us think that they're not very productive or constructive. People, you know, go back to their own echo chambers. So I, I think there's room for people to say what they feel and support causes in a way that's supportive, but not necessarily controversial. And frankly, we've been lucky. Our client base has been outspoken in a very measured way. And it just hasn't been a problem for us. I mean, we, we just tend not to... Uh, for whatever reason, have clients that, that go over the line and, and throw, you know, haymakers, which isn't say that's wrong, but it's, it's, it's very challenging. You know, if you're working for a company that doesn't want to be in the middle of a controversial fight and it's going to hurt their business model, then that's, that's the, the, that's the recommendation on our part. You know, think about how your employer is going to react.
0: What are you seeing locally, Steve, in terms of like the, and again, maybe you don't work with a lot of them, but you probably have a sense of the trends, but like, um, you know what's it like now for someone who is doing local sports in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Des Moines, Iowa, or maybe a bigger city like uh, Chicago, Illinois, or Los Angeles? What's the market like right now for that type of uh, that type of talent?
3: Well, we we have seen in in the last fifteen years because I don't know if you know, Richard, you probably know this, but but before we merged with the Montag Group, if management was a company that had you know, probably 150 clients, and uh, roughly 50-50 local news and network news television clients, and then sports clients. So we have still to this day 75, 80, 90 clients in local news, doing weather, sports, news, uh, business, uh, you know, traffic, whatever it is. So we're really enmeshed in that business. And we have seen over the years that business has been slowly and slowly diminishing. And they're trying to figure out new business models, digital or otherwise, and how to kind how of be relevant. And I, as you know, there's been a tremendous amount of consolidation in that business. But, look, there's still a local sports business. I, I think in some markets it's gone away. But places like Hartford, Connecticut, it's still doing okay. And places where you have, like, a fertile uh, college sports scene, like maybe, I don't know offhand, but maybe at Albuquerque that's the case. So in places like that, Austin, Texas, I think it's doing Okay. But um, overall, it, it's not a growth business. It's not a growth business at all. Um, but there are still pockets of it where people um, really are doing really smart things. Like we've, we have a client named Kevin Nathan who shifted to news, but for 20 years was in, in local sports. And he owned the local Yukon scene, the local high school scene, and really went out and created all these relationships. And I think that made him not just relevant, but really important to
0: his station. If um Steve, if you um if you were sitting in a class of uh, college seniors or college graduate students who wanted to get into the sports media business, particularly um uh, uh, uh particularly let's say like sports television or something that's quote unquote high profile, did digital. Uh, you know, front-facing digital talent, um, someone who's going to be seen because obviously that's what you, you know, most of your clients are. Like we, we see them. Um, what would you advise them at this point? If, if you're a 22-year-old um, who's bright, who, um, who wants this very, very much, but wants to get a sense of what the market may be like for the next five to ten years, what would you tell them?
3: Wow. Okay. So first of all, I would tell them do an inventory of yourself and if you want to use my thing in the book the awe method that's fine Um, make sure you have talent make sure that your skill set is aligned for this business you know in my book the first chapter i talk about a very seminal moment in my life where i was in law school at vanderbilt in my second year and i was working for a law firm in new york city and a managing partner pulled me pulled me aside at the end of the summer and he said steve you don't have what it takes to be a good lawyer. I don't think you're going to make it in this field. You should get out now because you're a really good guy and you have good sales skills, but you just don't have the mindset or the interest in the research required to be a litigator. And I think you should quit. And he was right. And he changed the trajectory of my life. I didn't have it. You know, I just didn't have the skill set for it. So if you want to be a broadcaster and you're 22 and you're at Syracuse or wherever, I mean, first of all, how is your voice? How are your communication skills? How's your body language? How deep are you willing to research the topic? Are you compelling? Are you entertaining? Are you funny? Are you someone that can hold an audience, you know, in your life? And so if you have those qualities, great. Then the next thing I would say is definitely build out your skill set. Learn how to do a podcast. Learn how to host a show. Learn how to interview. Learn how to elicit information from other people Learn how to call a game and be a play-by-play personality. And just be great at your craft. Practice your craft. And we have a guy who's, I think, 22. Maybe he's 23 now. Uh, a guy named Jacob Toby, who is a young broadcaster who is in Oklahoma, who just moved to a job in, in Denver. And he has all those qualities. He, he's very, very good on air. He's got a great voice. He's actually a singer as well. He performs uh, as a singer in, in his spare time. And he also does play-by-play. Play. He, you know, he's just a very interesting guy. He also has a lot of talents for this. So I think Jacob Toby, you know, remember that name, in 10 years, he's going to be a big name in this business. But you know, if, you, if you don't have those qualities, then you've know, you got to look in the mirror and be honest with yourself and think, well, I'm not saying you aren't a talented person, whoever's listening to this, but if this isn't really where you think you could be great, then go go do something else. There's a lot of things you can do in this world, but don't choose a field where your particular skills and your strengths in life are not aligned to that business. And that's a mistake I think a lot of people make.
0: That's interesting. Um, All right, the last one for me is this. Um, You know, one of the things that we've been hearing from uh, media companies, this is not just a sports thing, Steve, but sort of media companies in general is is a newfound commitment to diversity in the workplace to uh, to make more hires of people of color to focus more on race when it comes to stories about um, race in America to diversify its uh, management ranks um, you know these are certainly things we've heard before uh, certainly things that have not happened uh, but there does seem to be at least some some momentum on this following the murder of George Floyd and Obviously, seeing people on the streets uh, protesting about systemic racism and other stuff. As we're talking, Steve, we just you know there's a big piece in the New York Times that just came out uh, that specifically focused on ESPN with a lot of people of color saying that the opportunities are not the same for them as they are elsewhere. And ESPN has always been thought of as a progressive company. So that's a that's a long intro to ask you from your perspective, uh, agent wise, like, do you see things changing? Because so much of this business, let's be honest, has always been archetypes, you know, white sports center anchor, or if you're going to have a woman of color, woman of color, a lot of times, maybe a moderator between two debaters. Um, it's not always that obviously there are people of all different ethnicities and different positions, but as a general rule, the, the business remains incredibly white and incredibly male, at least in the sports media business. Um, from your perspective, Steve, what do you think? Do you think we're going to see a sea change or a shift? Or is this just at the moment, a lot of talk? And three years later, I'm asking you the same question.
3: Wow. Well, I'm, I'm just going to give you a prediction because obviously I don't know. Um, I think it's going to be different this time. I think there's going to be a sea change. Um, look, we've seen it more on the news side of the business, going back again to the news business that we rep- I know it's not the interest of your audience, so forgive me. But we have seen that there's been a definite change on that side of the business, both in terms of leadership, you see it at places like CBS News and, um, and, and on air and, and behind the scenes. So I do think it's going to change. I do think it is changing. And I think just society is different. I mean, I think this is just a watershed moment in so many respects for the way people are and the way people, you know, think of other people. And I just this this will be a definite change. How long and how deep it goes and, and what the ramifications are. For those people that have been on the outside looking in, we'll have to see. But I do want to also say one last point. I just want to give a plug here, if you don't mind. Um, I I personally have tried to be on the forefront of this representing women, African-Americans and and all people of color and and for, you know, almost my entire career, 30 years. And one other group of people that I think is getting left behind is people with disabilities. And, you know, we've represented Jason Benetti now for almost 15 years And he's the only sportscaster that, to my knowledge, in America with cerebral palsy. And he does a great job. And I just think that there's somewhere, the estimates are somewhere around 50 million Americans or more have disabilities. And I think those people uh, also need to be represented better in society. And they're forgotten. And they have a lot of value to offer people. And I, I hope that along with this change comes more respect and an opportunity for disabled Americans.
0: Now, thank you for saying that. Uh, that's a really, really important point. And, uh, and Benetti's an amazing announcer. I mean, he's, he's he's honestly one of the best baseball broadcasters out there. And I know that you've worked with him for a long time. So I appreciate that. Uh, that's probably something I should write more about myself. Um, Steve Herz is the president of the Montag Group and um, the author of a new book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy, to get exceptional results steve sometime in the next couple of months i want to have you back where we do uh um we sort of redo that agent's podcast that we did four years ago because i think uh, i think listeners would find it really interesting but uh congrats on the success of the book and uh and thanks so much for coming on today to the sports media podcast
3: thank you richard you call me tell me when i'll be back anytime you want thanks so much
0: Alright, back in the studio my thanks to um, all my guests today, Marley Rivera Jim Miller and Steve Hers for uh, their time and their conversation uh, if you like this kind of stuff, please uh, one, leave us a five star review and a comment that again is how the podcast sticks around because the, the bosses are reading that uh, advertisers read that and it makes a big difference um, prior to this week James Andrew Miller the aforementioned came on to talk about his new uh, origin series on Almost Famous. But beyond that, sort of ESPN navigating once again the nexus of um, politics and race and, and social justice issues and sports, which obviously are are paramount today. And Kurt Streeter, who uh, has done amazing reporting on Maya Moore of the Kurt Streeter of the New York Times, and he discussed that reporting. Before that, we had uh, The Athletic's Rhiannon Walker, ESPN's Mike Reese and Josh Tolentino. Before that, Michael Lee, senior writer for The Athletic, and uh, Robert Klemko, J.A. Donde. Before that, uh, had a panel with Lisa Wilson, Michael Eaves of ESPN, Rena Cash of um, the Savannah uh, Morning News, and um, Donovan Bennett, my colleague at uh, Sportsnet, and that uh, was sort of a panel on uh, how they're processing what's going on in the U.S. and Canada right now, and those are all journalists of color. Uh, before that, uh, John Oren was on, and then just go through the archives list, you know, Tom Producci, Bob Costas, Jim Ross, Renee Young, Scott Pelt. hopefully something there will uh, be of interest to you. All right, can't thank you enough for listening. Uh, really appreciate Patrick and uh, Sean and all their hard work. Thanks to everybody, Katie's 13, 13, from Chris Corcoran to Spencer Brown, John McDermott, We will be back sooner than later. And thanks again for listening to the Sports Media Podcast.